This is Shaco Artspeak. Yep. Hey, welcome to Shaco Artspeak. This is our hundredth episode. Boo, 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 boo. And if you can't see me, I'm pointing my fingers in the air in a super dorky way. Yeah, we all have party hats on. Yep, a hundred. It's a hundred. Can you hear Already. that? Do you hear? We have guests today. This is an unprecedented episode. We want to make it special, so we wanted to bring some of our greatest hits, uh, some of our <laughs> wow. closest friends of the yes. podcast. That's it. Some of the uh, <laughs> the best minds that we know. They're, That's right. You know, we were just talking about Minecraft. Minecraft. Yeah, that's a whole new. Yeah, that's where you got to plug in. That's where you get plug in. Minecraft. Yeah. <laughs> so that is Ian C Hess talking. Yeah. He's back from um, Amsterdam. <laughs> Amsterdam. I'm surprised I'm back. I'm not gonna I actually was worried about you, dude. I didn't know how long you were going to be gone. You shouldn't be worried. I thought you were going to become graffiti. I might. There's That's a place to do it. Do you remember the, the, uh, the Wiz? You the ever Oz? seen The Wiz? Mm-hmm. No, The Wiz. No. If you have not seen The Wiz. The Wiz are, is fantastic. Yeah, it is literally one of the most underrated films. And it is an incredible take on... The Wizard of Oz in an urban context. Michael Jackson, Diana Ross. I know that sounds crazy, but it it, it works. And one of my favorite things is the graffiti people. As a child, it terrified me. Oh my god! Yeah, it's I was gonna so- say that. Like, first when I saw that movie as a kid, I was both captivated and terrified. Yes, it's it's um more gritty. The roller coaster guy. I gotta go back. I own it. I mean, it's. I think it's a masterpiece. Actually, dude, it's um. Yeah, it always terrified me. Michael I mean, Jackson is a scarecrow. This is like young Michael Jackson. You got to watch it, man. The visuals, but like there's people that are in the walls. As graffiti. As graffiti. Oh. Dude, it's, it's killer. That and that's what fun. I thought happened to you in Amsterdam. That doesn't sound scary at all. You got to watch it. <laughs> Anyhow, that's right. a plug. If you, know, you haven't seen The Wiz, and because I love The Wizard of Oz, as like uh, as a kid, I was like, The Wiz. <laughs> there's taking a whiz and then there's watching the whiz you know what i'm saying <laughs> yeah totally different and there's things. cheese whiz. <laughs> then there's cheese whiz yeah then there's zardoz do you yeah. know zardoz no oh you gotta watch it it's a masterpiece is that the uh, is that the big floating head from mighty morphin power rangers it looks like exactly <laughs> yeah whoa did i get an echo i don't know maybe i sound like my voice is zardoz yeah it is echoey hey so we've never also we've never had uh four people on the episode before so no. who's the fourth person that is uh, uh joining us we, we heard some voices there if you've got your guests please call in now yes yeah, so yeah can we get two <laughs> seconds okay you lose all right no so, it is it is the miguel carter fisher miguel welcome miguel uh, thanks for having me miguel just shared that he's having a great day he's yes really, oh, wonderful <laughs> really awesome day i'm, I'm yeah. in a great mood shout out to ironclad for bringing us cinnamon rolls today mm-hmm. Because we wanted to make it special for episode 100. And so if you're joining us, episode 100 may morph into episode 101. Or because two, or three. T- or two. Or we don't because know. this conversation could go several hours. And if it does, we will break it down into parts for <laughs> yeah. you. And we won't be surprised. Yeah. And we won't be surprised. So we're Because yeah, we, I think really between these these two fellows that we get here today, yes. uh, we've only got like, I don't know, seven to nine hours of podcast with them. So it's all <laughs> this good. Is, we're actually going to record next year. This is next year's episodes recorded yeah, this, today. This is all of season three yeah, in season one day. Three. We don't call them seasons, but if we did, it would be season three. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, it's uh, you know, it's great. We've got some really fun stuff happening. So uh, what are we actually even talking about today? Well, we're going to start with snacks. Okay, and let's smells. do it. Uh, <laughs> present. Yeah. Okay, we got, we got that out. <laughs> Sorry, we have that out of the way. I have to wake up and I have to do that by telling jokes. 
So it's just a it's just a bad habit. No, I think it's fine. I mean, because our yeah. morning did start off. We uh, we tried to try to get a cheesesteak at nine a.m. And he didn't look like he understood what we were asking for. He was like, he's uh, like, you want a cheesesteak right now? Yeah. He was like, we we kind of we usually start at eleven, and I'm like, well, what about breakfast cheesesteaks? Yeah. Yeah, because I feel like, like it's all there. And he's in Garrett's like you open at seven, and he's like come back at eleven. I mean, if I if I went to McDonald's, I got like a sausage egg biscuit. Yeah, thing. it would have all the same stuff. Sure, like cheesecake, absolutely, it's totally breakfast. Here's the thing, though, man. I'm a sign reader, so when we got there at seven, and then he says eleven, seven eleven means we got to go somewhere different. We got to go to seven eleven. Yeah, I don't. Between the the Red Bull, the coffee, and the cinnamon roll, I don't know the Seven Elevens in my future. Okay, all right. <laughs> Just I don't to know be if honest, I get a cheesesteak from Seven Eleven. No, it'd be fine because it'd be wrapped up <laughs> in a, in a twelve day old yeah, taquito. I definitely would eat. be a cheesesteak taquito. Then yeah, rolling, just rolling, rolling, rolling yeah. on the rotisserie, just spinning, <laughs> becoming one mass. That's my favorite thing, man. Slow bruised hot dogs from um from Seven Eleven. Is that the like, brand name? Slow bruised. Slow bruised, and they're like. They're purple and green hue, just kind of um, <laughs> iridescent yeah. meat tubes. Oh. What's crazy is if you paint, if you took your painting class in there to paint one of those, you'd 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 accomplish two goals. You'd be painting like a cylindrical form, and you'd also be painting curtains. Oh, right great. The tubes. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, they're disgusting. Yeah, that's why they're always there, bruising slowly. I mean, <laughs> I want to hear you describing to them how they're not accurately getting the tip yeah you're missing the subtlety i think somebody yes. said you need to change the way the the roller is built yes you need to make a better roller yep build, and it would build have back better the roller build back better the roller yeah. and 2500 page document on how to make the hot dogs better yeah it costs four trillion dollars <laughs> seriously if i was president this is all we would talk about like america would be even more unhealthy i don't know how you have an infrastructure talk without dealing with 7-eleven i agree I, i'm totally with you dude Okay, so they're on every corner. So we've talked about snacks. snacks. You guys might be the only podcast that starts your 100th episode this way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's very true. (laughs) Especially with the really like lightweight topic we're going into. I actually forgot it was our 100th episode. I got so excited about you did the intro, the hot dogs. (laughs) Yeah, but that was a while ago. (laughs) That was like four minutes ago. That was four minutes ago, dude. Oh, man. But yeah, so we do have a topic today beyond yeah. just snacks, uh, which is good. So this is a rethink, by the way. Yeah, because we're, we're bringing it to an end. Historical right? context. This was supposed to be the, the one and only rethink episode. Yeah. And uh, so why did we make it into like a 40 part series? Um, because we when we brainstormed uh, this topic, it caused us to um, and, you know, it wasn't a brain. It's like we're not like searching, searching for topics like these are things that you're like. Man, you know, this comes up so much in our common experience. Yeah, like, you tossed know, around, tossed kind of cavalier around. in even, ways. Even, even you see young young artists come through and adopt this idea mm-hmm. as a way of validating their their work. Yeah. So it was uh, on the uh, suffering artist idea. Mm-hmm. Because I see every year people come through and capitulate that idea. It's like, it's like they're ashamed that they're not suffering. Or yeah. they're, you know, and so you're seeing people contend with this. So it was just one of those things where... We're like, we should just unpack that and kind of um, expand that discussion and, totally. and try to try to rethink it and try to clarify how you may be suffering and art may be a significant player in your life, yeah. but they're not part and parcel necessarily. So, right. so we, we um, you know, we started to have this conversation and then that, um, you know, also, you know, we're, we're in tough times. And so, um, can I make a title suggestion? Yeah. Could it be rethink snacks and suffering? 
It could be. I th- I think we can we can um, suffer snacks. It's not, yeah. It, I don't I I don't know how. We'll, we'll, let's think about it. We'll think if Ian's if Ian's suggestion holds by the end of this this talk today. I can only so, hope. I think you are brave, dude. Thanks for being yeah. brave. Thank you. We need more Thank people yeah. like you. Do you feel safe? I feel safe now. Okay, good. Okay. Um. So, so in all seriousness, though, yeah. So that. But then we started to think about other things mm-hmm. in 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 and with that that you start to find that need to be rethought, and that's what kind of kicked off the rethink series. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's uh you know it's not just um, I don't know. You don't just kind of drop into a conversation about suffering without kind of talking a little bit before. Yeah. Because right? it, it, it can come off kind of you know I don't know cavalier Jerky. or cavalier. jerk or you know a little. You know, you lose some of the nuance if you just mm-hmm. step right into it. So I think, you know, if you've kept up with a lot of the stuff that we've we've been talking through and kind of thinking through over the last, at this point, anymore. it's like seven or eight months. Yeah. Um, so I think it started back in February. Is it? So if, uh, you know, if you've kept up with us that whole time, then there's a lot of concepts that hopefully you sort of stuck your brain into for a minute and thought through to a mm-hmm. point where we can actually kind of unpack a really like a deep current within like the art community of of suffering and what that means because it's going to be against the backdrop of a lot of the other things we talked about mm-hmm. so we we brought ian and uh, miguel on because we all have pretty lively conversations yeah um outside of this podcast i mm-hmm. mean some of the best conversations happen outside the podcast and the hope of the podcast is that it, it as as always it's a conversation starter mm-hmm. it's not the uh, uh final statement but more of the initiating opening right. of the conversation so um this will probably flow in two parts. We'll probably talk about suffering and mm-hmm. that just that just kind of kick the ball around and kind of see where it goes. And then in the second part, we'll actually, um, you know, talk about some of our uh, favorite art or art that actually deals in, in areas of like death yeah. and, and suffering towards that end and, and maybe kick some of that around mm-hmm. because it seems like an important topic that that is not talked about a lot. Yeah. And, you know, in, in a way that is sensitive and thoughtful. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so, you know, and in the middle, there'll probably be uh, moments of brain debris because 100%. it's hard for, you know, you can't control what breaks into the Earth's atmosphere. No, that's a guarantee. You can only move out of the way and not get hit. Mm-hmm. So, or just um, stand there and take it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so with that, how do we want to, how do we want to do this? Like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't know. Maybe like a good place to start is, uh, you know, even just kind of bounce around, uh, kind of when we we all kind of became aware of that that trope of the suffering artist like how it came up when we saw it in ourselves other people whatever and to be clear it's not to say that it's not a real thing no it's totally it's real. just the question of like is it the only thing or is it the only way and so it's not a it's not an all negative thing right or an all positive thing it's really that there i think there's a big new uh, a nuanceful range which is why we have people in the room mm-hmm. that are coming out of uh our own experiences on this so so just so that for, for the listener preemptively, we don't have like a, a flat note to play on this topic. It's more yeah. like, uh, I, I think my hope is that we all uncover something or learn something together even. So, um, so yeah. So who, who wants to jump off first with that idea? Um, I'll be happy to kick it off. Sweet. So God, I'm trying to think of when did I first come across the trope of the suffering artist and it's hard for me to distinguish the trope, uh, I guess, when I became aware of the trope versus being aware of the reality, because my dad was a painter mm. who suffered a great deal. So it's sort of, um, I almost feel like by the time I saw the trope, I already had real life experience that um, set kind of a, uh, 
I guess set sort of a precedent, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, um, usually when we talk about the suffering artist, the, the focus is usually on um, money. And it's mm. uh, a good point. And it, it's interesting for me because, you know, like most most of my friends are involved in the arts in one way or another, whether it's dance, publishing, you know, literature, whatever. Uh, um, but even my friends who aren't, I mean, the one thing we all have in common, I, I guess, as millennials is we're all broke um, <laughs> compared to the generations that came before us and the cost of living is impossibly high. And so I, I've almost sort of, I think that trope of sort of the suffering artist and not being able to make uh, ends meet has been so universally uh, distributed across the culture that it almost becomes indistinguishable from just what it means to be alive in our society right now. I think the difference when I think of suffering for artists that's particular to today, it's how to get eyes in front of your work, mm -hmm. how to cultivate a community, um, how to find studio space and mm -hmm. exhibition space. Um, it seems uh, this art critic um, who talked at our grad school, who is around back in like the ABEX days, uh, he said, I can't, I wish I could remember his name. Was Donald, his name. Is it Donald Cuspit? No, I, okay. I did. I did talk with Donald Cuspit and, I, and he did give a couple lectures mm -hmm. there, but this was a different <coughs> guy. Um, I wish I could remember his name, but he, he made a really interesting point that he said that he didn't envy um, our generation compared to that of like Pollock and Willem de Kooning and stuff like that, because he says, yeah, those guys, sometimes they didn't eat, but they could always paint. And they always had a, a big studio and plenty of room to work and, a, you know, and they could find a way to always have a roof over their head. And I feel like we've sort of like, there's been this sort of inversion where our lives are full of all these gadgets and little conveniences. But the way we suffer is the biggest stuff, the most important stuff uh, to sustain one's career, both practically and emotionally as an artist are the things that have become uh, the most inaccessible. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I can watch any movie I want anytime, but, um, you know, in terms of how do I get my work out there? Like, you know, and like, you know, like, is Instagram it? You know, it's sort mm -hmm. of like, that's such a hollow, empty, dissatisfying, um, and, you know, I can't complain. I mean, I, I recently became a full-time professor, so I'm more fortunate than most. So uh, um, so a lot of my practical suffering has been alleviated, but there's still that kind of spiritual and emotional um, sort of hole um, that I know is not specific to me. I know that, like, everybody's going through it right now. Mm -hmm. And it's also just like, you know, one thing I've been struggling with lately, uh, when you, you know, asked me about doing this, I thought like, what has been really causing me to suffer lately? And it's simply looking out at the world and being just so disheartened and so disappointed in people that 
it's actually having a negative impact on my studio practice because I find it's hard to make artwork for an audience you no longer believe in. And um, that's been... That's been my suffering lately. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, think, well. I was going to say, like, I, I, the end of that is, like, super meaty to get into. Yeah. Um, but I want to jump on the first part you said. Uh, I think it's an interesting way to look at suffering as, like, a financial thing. Because um, that is the one I think that most people feel like, you know, you have to be the broke artist. Like, or you're a sellout or whatever. Um, I've had students say, like, the exact same words to me. Like, well, if, if I'm, like, successful at this financially, then what am I giving up? And I'm like, I don't know. Hunger? I'm, I'm not really sure what you're giving up. <laughs> like, you don't, have to, you don't have to give up something just to be Street able to cred. make a living, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, if I'm not broken homeless, like, I can't make art. And, um, and the funny thing about that, not funny, uh, super sad, so sad you have to laugh, I'm not sure, is that the culture has capitulated to that idea. And they're like, oh, no, you're an artist. You're supposed to be broke. Yeah, so I don't yeah. need to give it's you actually, anything for what actually, you have. Yeah, when I when I take from you, I'm actually enabling your your suffering in the proper way. Yeah, it's, it's it. why you have the the laughable things of like, hey, uh, hey, designer, uh, this will be a great portfolio piece. Yeah, and it's like, great. We'll It'll find be somebody good else on to your do resume. it. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's like, uh, wouldn't it be, uh, you know, be a wonderful thing for you to work for free because of this intangible yeah. that is this never actually. This humanitarian effort that you're, yeah. you know, it's in the long. The thing with the thing, so to go back for me just to, just to kind of pull pull it back mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like a sling you know it's like pull it back to slingshot into the meat of uh, yeah, yeah. where we got to with what miguel shared is when i was um so you know there's two lines there's sort of growing up in the context of the home that i was in so when my mom and dad were going at it you know there's times where i would uh we, my mom and i would lock ourselves in a room so that my dad couldn't get to us and so then uh, I would draw with her, you know, or, or read her books. Even when I couldn't read, I was like two years old and I fake read to her and she's mm-hmm. sobbing. And, and so I'm connecting creativity to the alleviating of some kind of suffering or the mm-hmm. buffering yeah, yeah. of it. So that, that's just like, that's like, uh, uh, a very pointed, extremely seminal and early encounter with the inner relationship of these things. So that's the soil that the seed is planted in. And then, you know, you fast forward to, I don't know, junior high school. And I had a, a teacher she's awesome man her name was sass robinson or she's still alive Sass. she's probably up there in age but and so you watch uh kurt russell's um it's a kurt russell or yeah um you know who's the one that played spartacus <laughs> yeah is it kurt russell no no, no who is it no wasn't it Kurt, a Kirk Douglas? Kurt Douglas, Kurt Douglas, sorry. There it is. Yeah, Kurt Russell is Kurt Douglas' son. He just changed his name, I think. No, 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 not, no. also not true. No. It's not true? Okay. <laughs> Who am I thinking of then? Who's his son? Oh, no. My, my, his son's Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas, yeah. Wow. Yeah, my There brain. are times they look They're the exact is. same age. Yeah. So, well, okay. So tell me, uh, what, I think it was him or it was, yeah, I think it was him. He played um, Van Gogh, but he also think he played um, Michelangelo. What's no, the old, who, who played no, the Mike, Michelangelo If film? you think Lust for Life, that was, uh, that was Kirk Douglas, that's and that's Kirk where Douglas. he played Van Gogh. And then I thought I've never seen it, um, but the one with Michelangelo, I thought that was uh, um, Charleston Heston. Dude, maybe uh, that's right. That, yeah, I love the ec- the ecstasy and the agony. That's right. Thank you. So I love to collapse those nice. two people together. Actually, yeah. so they become the same person for me. Um, <laughs> the only way I can think of Charlton Heston outside of that is is, is uh, Planet of the Apes, and that's a whole yeah. Thing. Well, they're they're both very like heroic Hollywood yes. men from a very, very particular, particular era. Yeah. So watching both of those movies in junior high school, mm-hmm. 
and seeing, you know, uh, Michelangelo painting and, you know, suffering up against the ceiling with paint dripping on his face in the film, you know, Mm -hmm. so you're seeing a kind of romanticized expression that cleans up your personal experience a little bit and gives you like an identity target. You're Mm -hmm. like, Oh, and then you, and then you watch, uh, the Van Gogh film and, and that, that particular film for me fleshed out this idea and gave, gave me an archetype. Um, that you're like, that must be it. And that's appealing because it explains mm. and it gives me a, like a, a, her- a hermeneutic or an interpretive framework for my own personal experience up to that point as like a junior high school kid. Yeah. So just to say like to put two nodes or plot points on the table, like those are two. And then, you know, seeing those films again. Yeah. And then you then you start to repeat it like, uh, you know, the Basquiat film comes out mm-hmm. and you get a, a kind of a cool. Julian Schnabel take on suffering and, and, and then you, in that film, I, I love that movie, but it, it's still a way of glorifying this idea a little bit yeah. um, in the midst of telling a real story. And it's tricky. It's, it's, it's in the interpreter, but yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because when I was a kid, the first time I saw Basquiat, it seemed very um, naturally romantic mm-hmm. because you're as much in love with looking at these big studios yeah. these big paintings in new york city that you get so, so wrapped up in the idea of like wow like yeah. he gets to paint the and jazz in the background yeah I mean, yeah but then i i re-watched it um as an adult and especially you know especially having a uh, father who is an artist who died of an opioid overdose re-watching the movie i realized like oh this isn't that romantic at all and i think i was so i think there's this thing where um and I don't want to. I don't think Schnabel was romanticizing that aspect of Basquiat's life. Mm-hmm. But I think when you watch the film and you're young and you're impressionable and you don't really understand what addiction is, you don't really understand like the full complexity of his situation, um, especially also the issues involving race. And him being kind of exploited mm-hmm. by the art community is a um, Robert Hughes put it. You know, he gave the the white New York art world the uh, the noble savage mm-hmm. archetype that they were looking for. And uh, and you in rewatching the film as an adult, I'm like, oh, all of that is in there, mm-hmm. and it's very not romantic and it's very ugly. But as a kid, you know, you you really just see the um, the romantic parts. Yeah, it's hard not to to have the romantic ideas. So that's kind of, and that's kind of how it came to me. What about you, dude? For discovering the suffering artist, um, I don't know. I've always been struck. Probably, I heard it said best, or maybe not said best, but said in a way that struck me the most by David Cho. I think he was on a podcast with Joe Rogan, and his podcast can just go for four hours and not really be about anything. But the most recent one that he did, uh, he just seemed way more astute and he just sort of had a quiet moment to himself. And he was like, I feel like I look for times in order to be happy. There's so much a part about life in order to discover your happiness in it and what makes you happy and what drives you forward. But every time I am, my work sucks. And he's like, I, I, I find the best work when I'm in the worst state of mind. And if you know anything about David Cho, he's been mm-hmm. he's been through it. So, and he he brought up some of the work that he made and it's like some of those paintings legitimately just are better. I think there's just more to it. 
Um, and I don't know if that's legitimizing it and I'm not trying to be David show, but I, I also, I made the most biggest leap in my own work when I was going through like a really rough breakup. And I know it doesn't necessarily compare, uh, to the passing away of a father, but there's in these moments, uh, where you're sort of, you have your understanding fractured essentially. Mm -hmm. Like I, I saw the world one way. And now it's a new way. And whether that's a loss of a person or a ending of a relationship or passing away of a friend or whatever it is, there's something about it that sort of cracks open your mind. Uh, and I think it, it forces you to sort of reestablish what's important. And so for me, when I was looking to find new work and really take a leap forward, that sort of energy, it gave me like light years of energy to just sort of plow forward and, and be willing to make more mistakes. Uh, and just throw it all at the wall and sort of see what sticks. And since then, I mean, that was some of the work kind of led into the Prometheus Rising show that I ended up having here. And I think that's been the most definitive for me personally. I mean, that was like a, a dream. And so then doing that, uh, it was leaps and bounds for me. So in some sense, like the suffering was supportive of that. Um, but I don't. it's not like the destination. Like I see the suffering artist... And I, I, in my mind, I conflate like the suffering and the starving artist. One is the same. And in both of them, when you're sort of have nothing to lose, I think there's a, in large part, the work can be benefited by that. Whereas if you essentially have everything you need, like I was listening to a podcast with Henry Rollins and he was talking about like Black Flag singer. I mean, he's been on the ground doing it for the longest time. And the podcast, he was like, I can't make that music anymore. I, I can't do what they did in Black Flag back in the day. He's like, I got three meals a day and I have money. He's like, I'm just not, I'm just not mad like that. Like I'm, uh, I'm happy with my life. And because of that, I'm doing completely different work and I'm trying to help other people. So it's like, I don't know. There's, there's, I mean, there's positives and benefits to everything. Uh, for me personally, like the, the suffering and the work, the sort of broken aspects and the reestablishing of what's important, those things, bolstered up my work and it, it really forced me to look at it examine it what's going on and rather than I guess just being happy and going on dates or something. <laughs> not that it's not great <laughs> to be happy but uh yeah I, I think there is something about dealing with hardship and making powerful work uh in my experience and I, I well, see yeah, it reflected definitely so man there's so much to that's why I think this will be a can be a like a you start unpacking categories it becomes a really big conversation yeah so one of the things that i think is interesting is that um when we talk about this i mean gosh there's times where i didn't have a, i was i actually was homeless i was sleeping inside a university university studio i was like staying in my then wife's my, my now wife then girlfriend's couch surfing you know i mean i've had these moments where you're like and you're making work and you're it's real intense and i think one of the things that you said uh is when you feel like you have nothing to lose that's something like there's something about that mm -hmm. the question is is that a in not to answer it now but the question from one one of the questions on the table for me is um is there a way to be satisfied and have nothing to lose or is it only when we're we're um when we're in a a place of loss or suffer you know a place of lack um the other, so i just want to put a note there. Cause I think that's a, that's an interesting thing to come to. The other one is, um, what you mentioned about black flag. And I agree with this. I think if we're moving into, um, kind of like a, a, a life arc, um, 
you see it a lot of musicians when they're hungry, um, you know, hungry for a recognition, hungry for, yeah, they're willing to suffer a lot in order to obtain to some some level. And so a lot of first albums are always the best. And sophomore out, the sophomore slump has a lot to do with mm-hmm. obtaining. And because what happens is you have to rewire your motivations. Well, what are my motivations now? And that's a drop off point for creative excellence. A lot of people obtain and then that's where they stop. The really excellent people, which becomes more rarefied air, somehow maneuver uh you know, in, in no, no specific terms, um, they, they, they're rewired into a, a different set of motivations to continue on. And, you know, we're still living in, in um, a very particular era where that's unfolding right before our eyes. So, like, I'm not a Jay-Z fan, but um, there's people like that that have m- moved through transitional stages and the scope of their work changes. And then they come in and they make an album and then they move. And I, I know I'm using uh, music, but... Um, we're also like, there's artists that are still making really compelling work, having become famous in the you know the '60s or '70s that are still around doing work. But we're 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 kind of seeing this play out in a public and accessible way, sort of for the first time. We're actually living yeah, through. Yeah, you can see it more than ever. Yeah, you can yeah, follow yeah, yeah. every step. You can follow every step. Whereas we've never really had the ability to to, you know, we have art, the art art historical canon, and we have the way people have mined back into the past and mm-hmm. tried to lift out narratives through their their kind of honestly like everyone's biased lens right mm-hmm. um but we're living through uh, a, a a period of time where we're seeing you know it's like um um yeah we're living through a period of time where you're seeing people they either stay saying the same things that they said when they were 19 or 20 and so they become sort of a parody of themselves or they become kind of like a um a cover band of themselves to be honest so in some ways, like Snoop Dogg is a kind of a cover band of himself in some ways. <laughs> I was like um, Ice Cube and Snoop Dogg. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. and where Ice Cube is where Ice Cube is actually uh, continued to flourish as a, a visionary is in starting uh, the big three, which is a basketball professional basketball league. So like where his visionariness has transpired is, is outside the realm of rap music now, mm-hmm. but not disconnected from it, which I think mm-hmm. is really interesting. And then you have people like Outkast and they they, you know, one stops. And the other, and says, I, I can't talk about what I talked about when I was 19 or 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then, um, big boys continue to make albums or you have like common sense who's become, he's like one of the most fluid maturations of a hip hop mm-hmm. artist that I've seen. Yeah. Like whether you like him or not, it's a fluid maturation. So he's just talking to you as like the 47, 48 year old man that he is mm-hmm. from that perspective. So we're, yeah. I'm just saying we're seeing, this is just some examples that come to my mind. Um, they're not visual artists, but it's, you know, um, yeah. Well, I wonder how much of this is an inherent, um, aspect of being a creative person and how much of this is a dynamic that is created by the kind of popular culture we have. Um, because as you were talking, um, you know, I often think about bands like the Beatles and Mm -hmm. how, when you look at their creative growth in a five year period. And when you realize that the Beatles weren't really a band like in the spotlight for very long Mm -mm, and how, you know, within like a five or six year window, they became like four or five different bands. They're like a they like reinvented themselves every year. They were a completely different group. And um, take that Madonna. And it just makes me wonder. I I know. And then you have people (laughs) like Madonna who 
they kind of do the they dress up they they like mm-hmm. they wear reinvention without yep. their actually being any core reinvention but but i do wonder um i think about this uh frank zappa interview where he was talking about you know the old guys who used to run the labels that he preferred them to the young like the hippies as he called it that kind of took over because they were willing to take risk. They'd hear something new. They'd say, I don't really get it, but maybe the kids will like it. So we'll take a chance on it. And he says, and then the problem is the people who became the curators also decide were the people who felt that they knew what was hip. They know what's interesting. They know what real music is. And you see the same thing happen in the art world um, where you have sort of people who are positioned as gatekeepers who sort of decide for the public, like what is marketable, what is accessible. And, and then, you know, and that is only reinforced. Like we talk, you know, people talk about the internet, like it's this, uh, um, neutral playing field when in fact throughout, you know, all we've done is taken that kind of gatekeeping and we do it with algorithms. There's this sort of reinforcement of what people already know. And it, it's the problem with being a risk-averse culture. Um, we like the appearance of innovation, but we actually don't want it. What we really yeah. want is to be comforted. We want assurance. Yeah, we want reassurance that when we go to a movie, like the good guy's going to win in the end. And we don't want to be challenged. We want to have our own beliefs, assumptions, our own aesthetic um, taste reflected back to us. Um, and it's, and I and I think that kind of because I've been thinking a lot about. Um, I've been getting really into looking at Velasquez lately. Oh, me too. Because you know, my whole life, people have been telling me Velasquez is the greatest painter who ever lived, and and I never really dug that deep. I never really quite got like what makes Velasquez so great. And I look at, and you know, now that I've spent more time looking at his work, I've come to have a much, much deeper appreciation of uh, the evolution of his painting. And what got me is he was already on top. So much of his creative growth that really kind of altered and changed the whole way we think about painting and the whole way we think about paint application and stuff. And composition. And composition. All of it. All of it happened after he was at the very top of the food chain. Like, he couldn't be any more successful Mm -hmm. than he was, and yet he kept growing and kept changing. And so it it has me thinking, like, is this a historical thing? Or is this, you know, and the same can be said for Rubens. You know, Rubens was an international rock star Mm -hmm. in his era, but it's not like, you know... You don't look at a late Rubens and go like, oh, man, you know, he really lost, you know, like, (laughs) you know, it's so I mean, was enough suffering already built in to just being alive in the 17th (laughs) century to where, you know, uh, maybe maybe it had to do with there just being no shortage Mm -hmm. of suffering so that even if you were the most famous painter uh, in Europe, you probably maybe you still had a closeness to mortality and sickness and death and stuff that, you know i think that's one aspect of it um, i would also say i would also say so part of what you're saying is kind of what i was saying with reference to certain like 
musicians is, or rap artists is to say that um, there seems to be drop off points is, is just one line. Like there are certain people that have something so much so that they're they're operating out of a different different kind of motivational framework. But that's one thing. But the other thing is the other thing is the cultural reinforcement. Mm-hmm. So what's different in, in when you're talking 17th century is there is no competing medium for doing what a Rubens was doing. In other words, there's no TV, there's no film, there's no photography, there's no, there's no competition. And so um, there's a kind of cultural um, demand and urgency uh, solely. So it's a different kind of pressure that's bore out than say the pressure of competition of the, the way that we might experience it when it's like, you know, you got artificial intelligence makes images now, or like we're—I mean, we're in a really different but, different space. But but when you're but when you guys are making art, I mean, like when you're in the studio, because I've heard that. But like I know when I'm in the studio, I'm not, I'm not thinking about competing. Oh, with, not at with all. other mediums. Yeah, you know, but, I'm not. But what I'm saying is, what I'm you, saying is, you, oh, you it's, I do that big time. Yeah, it's on a, But what I'm saying is, you said it, or but you but you alluded to it though. It's and what I mean by that is not you don't have to be conscious of it. It's just in the atmosphere of the cultural difference. So it's it's just it's, so it's why when you say how do I get my work out there and and it's also part yeah. of why you would say I've lost faith in my audience. Well, uh, the audience is so variegated that we don't even have attention spans anymore. And so um, it, it it's not better or worse, but there are there are differences that are interesting to think through and to say um, that. I would say that Velasquez and Rubens had have have a little Jay Z in them, in the sense that they just happen to be that kind of person that's going. I know I'm not even a fan, but I'm saying that that can keep pressing through, and and even even like, um, a lot of people get to the top, and then that becomes an interesting thing, which we rarely see because you have to have a a set of aesthetic conditions and a structure and a game to play to establish what the top is, like in sports. Like right now, I'm you know I'm not a huge LeBron James fan, but he's in year 19 and he's doing things that in sports we haven't seen in the modern era. Like he's almost as good as he was in his first year. He's better in many ways. We've just never seen that before. Like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar played for 20 years, and at the end you're like, this guy is old, and people made jokes about uh, rocking chairs, and and so he you know you 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 had to adjust for age. Whereas with LeBron James, people were like, this is year 19 and this guy is running and jumping and winning in ways that we've just never seen before. Um, so like there are there are these examples that seem to just be uh, prodigious, like they're just prodigies. Um, and then and so then there's everyone and then there's everybody else. And there's like a, a, a range to it, it seems in um, a set of factors that are competing even when you're not. What I'm saying is your audience is already lost to other stuff. I was going to say, like, you're talking about kind of this broken, broken audience out there. Like, is Instagram the only way? And when I think about it, I think some of the the suffering part of art is in that question of, like, how the hell do I even get seen? Like, if I'm if I'm making and I'm my only audience, like, does this really matter? Like, I'm showing it to my five friends that always see my art. Like, there's there's something pretty depressing about that because it seems like, uh, in our media landscape, we always like to to clout that we have so many different things, so many different ways to get out there. You can have exposure on a million different channels, and it's like, no, they're all tributaries that lead to the same river. 
And it's so you get into a space where you're like, oh, I'm going to put my stuff up on fill in the blank for whatever's popular today. And it's like, yeah, but still like that's being used to tell you about the dumb new show on Netflix. So you can go to Netflix and watch it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not there's there's no like real space of like open like kind of a a cultural space like where like like the instagram is not the salon you know it's not uh it's not the arcades you know it's not it's not that like as much as we'd like it is well, influencers it, is what it, it is what it is at this point right, right? it is something but it, the question of what it is yeah but i think that that's one of those things where it's like you know even in the spaces where you could be seen like you honestly can't like the system's kind of built against you in yeah. some ways because it's like, how are we going to monetize uh, your art? No if I put a bikini on, I will be seen more. If I put yeah. a bikini on in front of my paintings, I will get more. Likes. If I'm a dog yeah. with goofy ears, I'll get more. I will be seen more. Yeah. It's very, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I if mean, you're like, a cat, yeah. if you're a cat, you're going to get a lot. I'm not even joking. That's like a yeah. fact. If, if uh, Gordon Ramsay would talk crap about my art, people would see it. Yeah. But it's yeah. like, but outside of those things, that's an entertainment based influence on society. Actually. And it's, and that's what I mean. Like everything kind of flows in that river of entertainment. And we look at something like art and design and we don't have it in that space because our, our lane of entertainment, I think is, is an only passive lane. Mm-hmm. Like entertainment is for me to sit here as a human blob Absolutely. and just be shown things like clockwork orange, just hold my eyes open and just feed me all your crap. And, uh, instead of being something where it was like active and sought out and you were mm-hmm. a part of a community and you were, you were with other people doing things, you know, so that even while you were suffering, at least you like had a couple folks with you who were like in the same space, but they were like, let's keep painting. Mm-hmm. Let's keep making, let's do some stuff with it. Um, you know, as much as I think art students will kind of align the suffering with like a bohemian lifestyle, mm-hmm. like, yeah, you know, if you're in Bohemian Paris and you're just living your life with 47 people in the same apartment and you're all doing absinthe and like, you know, kind of drowning and all of that, they're still like writing plays, making posters. It's also work. Doing work. It's real work. And it's like, it's not just putting on a certain type of clothes and showing people. Costume. like It's not costume. Yeah. Like we're talking about Madonna. Like it's, uh, it's actually like a, it's an act of suffering. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like with what you're saying, Ian, like kind of how I understand is it. like, it's doing something. Hey, which it's came not first, the costume or the art? Hmm. It's a good question for students right now, for people, but anyhow. But I mean, <laughs> a lot of people put the costume on first. Oh, and yeah. They, yeah, hope, yeah. they hope that that actually um, makes them an artist. Oh, I hear people t- do the whole, oh, you know, the dress for the job you want, not the job you have, fake it till you make it. Yeah. Like all yep. the, I hear that crap so often now. Yep. It's it's really become sort of a part of the the ethos or whatever, you know? Yeah. Hey, yeah, cuz honestly that's why I wear a bikini with no clothes on and I'm really tan cuz I'm trying to be a bodybuilder and I figured if I dressed <laughs> what type to of be body one, are you building? Well, I mean, you know, I figured if I put the bikini on and I'm bronze <laughs> and I walk around with a big smile, <laughs> um, I, I'm going to be a bodybuilder. I mean, by that logic, so I should smiling, become a really muscular you look like person. You're yeah. yeah, I should be really muscular <laughs> at some point. Did you see the guy that actually busted in on a, um, a bunch of bodybuilders? So they're all doing their thing. And uh, this guy, who's a very average built man, is walks in and like, and people aren't sure. And like the bodybuilder's looking at him and he starts posing. And next to him, he like starts doing a pose down. He's probably Saw built that. similar to Ian. And then he what's that supposed to mean? <laughs> just a way of making Ian feel good. And then he jumps on top of the podium and they, they rush and carry him off. It's pretty funny. But I, I, I wanted so you um 
Oh snap! I, I lost my uh, my my juice on the point I want or I wanted to ask. Where's that juice? Yeah, where is that? Um, is I guess like to keep keep going back before we go forward. Like, is suffering um, is suffering like necessary? Like, what what do we think for uh, for any of you? What do you think is the um, you know? Because Ian, you said something about like a breakup, and I definitely had that. You know, those experiences or death. Uh, um, why is it that it seems like, um, the people that are the most, I mean, is it a sensitivity thing? Like, like, so why, why was Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain or something, you know, like why, you know, what, what makes, um, you know, what do you think about that? Like what's, what's going on with, uh, uh, is it a capacity? You know, what do you think? I think I, I mean, for me, I, I've always viewed suffering as a guarantee it's not so much as a necessity but there's literally there's no way to get around it you can't exist you can't have relationships you can't know people you can't have a dog it without some level of suffering so i think more so like the crux of what suffering being a guarantee is entirely in the response that you have to it more than it is just suffering like i'm just oh i'm just suffering and i'm just making work and every day i suffer i suffer it's more so the response what what do you build out and especially if there's, you know, like something truly terrible happened, it's like that can that can floor you. I mean, it can it can cause you to freeze up, to curl into a ball and uh, just wait the days away. And it's not like I think all of us have had a depressed day. One day you just don't want to get out of bed and uh, maybe there's demands around it. And because of what you're feeling, it's all the more intense. But it's a guarantee that there's going to be some level of suffering and even extreme amounts of suffering. Uh, and I, I've always viewed it as the response. It's like, you, you can do anything with it. It's sort of like this intense energy that is guaranteed coming your way. And how do you sort of deflect this and turn it into something? He just did like a last airbender move. I did. Okay. That was nice. Yeah. I was yang in that moment. I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna say the same sort of thing. It's like, I don't, you know, necessary. I don't know if it's there, you know, um, but it, it is. You know, that it's just kind of a natural state. And so I think of things like suffering and there's like a, you know, a sense of like things that are kind of out of whack um, that aren't as we would wish, that aren't as we would desire, right? Like um, nobody wants to to go through the painful breakup. Nobody wants to lose a loved one. Nobody wants those things. And we know when they happen that we're just like, this, this doesn't feel like the best of all possible situations, but it is. And I think that... Um, when you when you think about um especially if i mean if what you're doing is kind of engaging in a place where you're trying to uh broad broad sort of assumption here but um no way gareth we never yeah, do that yeah just if if you're engaging in some capacity with creating kind of uh imagined desired worlds in whatever way that is whether it's capturing time as a thing that can stand still uh, whether it's imagining a space that would be different, whether it's idealizing things, whatever it is, if you're doing that through the arts, like there's already kind of an inclination and a lean, I think, in, in creative capacity to kind of do that. Even if you're sitting there and you're just pointing out all the desperation, like you're you're probably not doing it as like a cheerleader of desperation necessarily, but but there is still something at play where it's like, wish it were a little different. Mm-hmm. And I think at the heart of suffering is that kind of a space where you're like, man, I wish this was different. Yeah. And I think that sometimes you can have a very productive, like artistic impulse to that suffering, like you're talking about, Ian. That's of right. Like, yeah, yeah. Of like, yeah, like I desire different, 
I can't, I can't actually make that different because suffering is a part of this world. But what I can do is I can make things that maybe move me through it or help me with it or show it differently, or at least take that energy and a capacity and extend it into another space to do something with, um, that can be generative, you know, that can be more helpful. Um, Maybe that's like, that's the whole power of it right there is like, I have such a strong desire for things to be different because the the current state that they're in is essentially insufferable. Like it's painful to be here. And so in using that energy and the, the idea of the suffering artist, I mean, maybe that's why, cause through great suffering to bring about great change, it's like, it's, it makes it feel like a matter of necessity rather than a place of abundance or legacy or something like farther down the line for an artist of, so that energy I, I see, like I see great use in it as far as it's not like you don't want to seek out suffering. I mean, nobody wants to do that, but I think it as an agent of change, ideally towards something that's beneficial, not only for you, but for other people around you. Uh, yeah, that, that, I mean, that powers you forward big time. So I think, I think there's also, so just cut, uh, to kind of keep muddy in the waters, not in disagreement, but just kind of like, um, there's like lament. So like, Mm. so there's like, um, you mean suffering is not just a a single term that covers everything. Yeah. So there's like lament. (laughs) So like you, you, you know, when you lament or you think about like lament, there's like Psalms and you're, you're agonizing in song or you're, you're agonizing in poetry or you're. Um, and so there's something about our ontological state and the range of our given capacity. Uh, and, and the more you know, the, the more option there is to desire and, and the more option there is to then suffer at the expense of the desire. Um, and so it creates conundrums. Uh, um, and the more thoughtful uh, one finds themselves being about things, the more risk there is of of um in uh coming to love more deeply mm-hmm. um and then coming to loss more deeply mm-hmm. and and coming therefore uh into a position to suffer more greatly yeah and so so when miguel says that our culture is risk aversion um mm-hmm. and, and there's a kind of a dumbing down if you will i think it's a um a a uh, hundred years of escapism uh towards an optimistic uh um utop- utopic hope in technology and in, in um, externalized sources to alleviate our suffering. And what's happened is it's, it's brought us low, but we're, um, we're oftentimes too ignorant of how low we're being brought. So yeah. we're frustrated the way children are frustrated. And mm-hmm. when you watch kids, like my, my kids, because their capacity is, is limited to that, that of a child, uh, they can feel things deeply, but they're feeling a few things deeply with, a, with any kind of real awareness for it. And so like my son suffers daily, because he wants and he can't get instantaneously. So every day with my six and a half year old, we talk about why he needs to not cry and why he actually needs to be patient. Yeah. He broke my Bob Ross doll yesterday, my little oh. bobblehead. So this is a um, a discussion we've had seven times, yeah, at least. And this is a discussion my mom, I've, I've told the story many times when I broke one of her, her mm-hmm. dolls when I was two. Yeah. So, um, so he, he gets, he, I said, son, you know, he's worried now that I'm mad at him hmm. and I am upset. I'm disappointed at him because he, he disobeyed. And he was being impatient because I had to set a work email. I was, we were playing, said, hold tight. And, uh, he couldn't be patient. So he, dis- he disobeys and what I've warned him will happen happens. And so then what he does is he stares at me. Now he's like psychoanalyzing whether or not I'm disappointed in him. Hmm. And 
there's no wherewithal that he actually shouldn't have just done. He shouldn't just done. They should just waited two more seconds. Yeah. Literally two more seconds. So he leaves and he doesn't apologize. So, um, I go outside and he's up on the porch bouncing a basketball. I said, son, come here. And we sit down on the porch and I said, were you, why, when you break things and you mess things up, do you not apologize and you leave? He says, cause you're selfish. And he's like, I said, are you, it's cause you feel sorry for yourself. And so he gets angry. He's like, I'm not selfish and I don't feel sorry for myself. And you know, he's, he's processing and we start having this conversation before you know it. It's, it's like, it's like, yeah, cause I, cause I, uh, don't want you to be mad at me, but I also, I'm a little bit selfish, you know? And so then I start, we start talking this out and he starts crying cause we're talking it out. Now he's having to suffer in patience. Um, to come to some greater understanding that he doesn't want to obtain to because he's more comfortable staying where he was 10 minutes ago. That's more comfortable to him because it allows him to be justified in his response. Mm. But he, he come because of my perseverance with him, he comes out the other side with, uh, I actually am sorry, dad, because we had to walk through the whole thing. It's like, I was like, the way I read it for you is that you, you actually do not care. It doesn't register when you hurt people or break things. Because when you leave and you you don't apologize, you don't you don't take responsibility. You don't look people in the eyes. You don't say you're sorry. You don't seem to have any sympathy. So he's six and a half. We're having this conversation. How it ends is he breaks down in in proper tears. He feels remorse and he says, "The thing is, Dad, I do care." And then he's like, and then he really starts to cry. And then he leans in and gives me a hug and he says, "I'm very sorry." I said, "I know, son, and that's what that's what I want you to feel like you can actually express." Yeah. But we got to work this out. But my point is. Uh, a two second interaction of impatience on his end produced him having to suffer through <laughs> like an hour conversation that he does not want to have until yeah. it actually works out for his good. And that's predicated on his capacity. We're not doing that in our culture, by the way. Right. We're, we're, we're enabling people. We're rationalizing people into positions to stay that way, to stay in their, in their simplified state. And um, not have to work through the, the the mess and the complexity in loving and kind ways together. Yeah. So I mean, not all I mean, the time, but yeah. Well, also, it's, I mean, it's a 150 year old conversation that we've been having in the arts uh, in that exact same space. Uh, you know, you go back to like the 1870s and you see industrialization in America, and you see the conversations that pop out in the arts, mm -hmm. especially like you know in design and craft. And they're talking about like the loss of soul, the loss of art, the loss of craft, the loss of all the stuff. So mm -hmm. 100 150 years ago. Yeah. And then uh, we fast forward and we're enough, we're enough generations past that, that it's like, we don't even have a concept of what we could be doing. Correct. And so we're sitting here and we're like, look at this mud I'm moving around. And it's like, you could be doing so much more. And it's like, but this mud, mm -hmm. look at it. It's like, get out of the damn mud. Yeah. Like go somewhere else and do something else. You know? And so you, you look back and I had plenty of professors who would you know, kind of like could not get through the name William Morris without like having a full body like eye roll because they were like these people with their anti-progressive talk. And it's like, don't you want beautiful things? Don't you want to be working in pursuit of things that people attach themselves to, that they actually like, that actually says our capacity is much bigger than we actually give ourselves credit for? Our, our ability, like the what we, what we play at is that, tiny. Gareth, is no. That's <laughs> well, the answer. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's what our culture screams every day. Whole institutions are built on, on no. Yeah. No, They're I don't. Like, no, I don't. <laughs> if y'all can, if y'all can just take this degree and just go stand in the cultural corner and just make fart noises for the rest of your life, like that's kind of what we're doing for you. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, and then uh, we have then people doing the fart bucket challenge. You <laughs> seen that one? Yeah. <laughs> fart bucket challenge. Oh gosh. It's where a person farts in a bucket and the other person puts it on their head, and smells it. Oh. It's, it's going viral, I've, dude. It's I've, super weird. It's it's going. It's definitely going viral. You see the fart wake up that they were doing. No. The friends, if you have like a microphone and a speaker, people were <laughs> their sleeping friends. <laughs> Wait, are you They're serious? They're putting the mic on their ass, and then they put the speaker at maximum volume. So when it inevitably happens, it's a, it's a fart wake up. Oh my gosh! Yeah, How did I not know about shits this? Shits you awake? Yeah, I would, I would, I would have a heart attack. Probably. Yeah. Which would and if the mic was still there. I don't need a up. mic for that. No. But anyhow. Yeah, but I think yeah. that you know there is something to be said about the fact that you know <laughs> if you if you look at just the conversations we had about hey uh, factories might not be the best thing we could put in the society in the 1870s. And then you go forward to the, the 2020s and we're like, and we're just like, but, but factories are life. Well, no. Yeah. And then we and build, there's we such build public big education around factory that around, we've institutionalized yeah, the factory creating in factory every workers. space. Yep. Also, if you will please get on your little uh, miniature culture factory in your hands yeah. and you'll, you'll put more cogs in the system and just tap the thing and scroll the thing. Yeah. And then, I'm going to do uh, it right now. You're making me want to do it. And, and then we sit there and we're like. Where are the artists? And it's like, oh, we made them brain dead years ago. Yeah. So let's wake up. We believed we believed Plato when he said, "Get rid of them; they're dangerous." <laughs> Threw them out the city. Yeah. From this, it sounds like there's some degree that suffering, or perhaps a lot of degree, that suffering is essentially like institutionalized or solidified in American culture in itself. Well, I, th- I think there's like maybe even like a snake eating its own tail sort of thing. Where it's like you almost can't parse it because they're so, so like it's almost like maybe maybe certain people feed off of suffering. Maybe there's certain things that suffering can be commoditized in. Miguel, you seem like you have something you really want to get in here. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been thinking so many different thoughts because, um, well, um, I've been thinking about my students, and I've also been thinking about my own experience with suffering, and. I guess sort of uh, just kind of flying off the top of my head, uh, I'll start with my own experience is, you know, for me, like Ian, you know, it was sort of like a very, the biggest breakthrough in my work came from a really, uh, you know, miserable, impossible, kind of like difficult situation. Um, But like, I was thinking about the circumstances surrounding it, and it it wasn't just suffering. It was I stopped suffering in some ways and started suffering more in others. Mm. Like it wasn't something that could be Mm. like easily because circumstantially, I got out of working in kitchens. I got out of retail. I started teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also, uh, Christine and I had moved in together, and so I had someone to sort of carry the burdens, a Uh lot of like burdens with me. So in a lot of ways, my life had gotten easier and a lot of like practical things were more taken care of. um, And I had more support at the same time, like losing my dad was this experience that just completely isolated and alienated me Mm -hmm. from everyone. And, um, and I can't even begin to describe those feelings because, you know, I had spent 15 years of my life trying to keep my dad alive. Mm-hmm. And then you lose that battle. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, 
what the hell is my life even about anymore? Mm. Like this crisis was the central crisis of my life and now it's over and this person who's like my best friend is gone. Mm-hmm. And um and for me it kind of was this thing where my work got much stronger very quickly but the way my work grew was it was things that I always wanted to do mm-hmm. but didn't give myself permission to do. Mm. And I think being just shaken all the way down to where I have nothing left, I just, it made me completely, um, I think the suffering made me fearless. And Hmm. the fearlessness is what enabled the creative growth. Because I think maybe, maybe I was just comfortable enough to where I was uh, unconsciously kind of towing this line, like kind of unconsciously still thinking about, well, what does my school think? And what do my friends think? And what do you know, and still kind of like, um, and then I think suffering can kind of push you to a point where all of those things that you thought were important that were actually getting in your way, suddenly, you know, you lose somebody you love, um, or you go through a terrible breakup, or just whatever, like cataclysmic, life-changing event like will diminish those things enough to where you're able to push them out of your way and do the work that is like more authentically yourself so but at the same time i also simultaneously had a lot more studio time than i had had before Mm -hmm. you know and so it was this so like i said it was it was a combination of like some things in my life becoming a lot more painful and a lot more difficult and other things suddenly becoming a lot easier. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I can't, yeah, I can't parcel it out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, and the interesting thing is, and this is super, this is something I get here every single time I have a show and it drives me crazy. Is somebody always comes up to me and says like, I love your paintings, but I mean, like they're beautiful and they're moving, but who would want to live with something so depressing? Who would want to live with something so sad? And really what they're saying is who would want to own an object that constantly reminds them of suffering? And I think it's because people have, uh, we, we've defined art as escapism mm-hmm. and defined art as entertainment that people can't imagine art serving a function in people's daily lives other than escapism and entertainment. I was going to say, I'd take it a step further and say that we've even defined culture as escapism and entertainment. Yeah, yeah that's so, what I'm saying. Earlier. So there's a the place that it just doesn't on that. fit. But then, but then, like, what happens? Like, uh, Michael Pierce, a painter here in Richmond, put together a Memento Mori exhibition mm-hmm. where it was all artists who had lost someone and made art kind of in there as a part of their grief process. And I was thinking about, like, the social function that's, that art used to serve. Like, I think for us personally, um, and I think all of us from the discussion so far would agree that art has played a role in enabling us to uh, weather kind of the storm of Mm -hmm. life's difficulties. And yet when we turn to then give, you know, this gift that the creative act has sort of given to us, we turn to give it to others and then we're told, there's not a place for this because art's not supposed to be about suffering. Mm-hmm. And if anything, that 
that causes further suffering, uh, not only for the artist, but for the audience, because you live in a culture where, you know, when I get on social media, when I turn on TV and stuff like that, like so little of it is actually um, resonating with my lived experience. Mm -hmm. And that's further isolating and further alienating. And then that inevitably leads you to seeking out more forms of escapism. And, you know, so it's it's sort of like this self-perpetuating disaster. Yeah. And I don't know how... Um, I think a, a part of the solution is making spaces for art and culture that do a lot of the things that we used to allow art and culture to do. Mm. Like painting has something to say about death, you know, mm -hmm. painting has something to say about, uh, childhood and memory and trauma. And we have to find a way of engaging people in art again on, on a level that's not, did I entertain you for the three seconds you looked at this on Instagram? Mm -hmm. Because it's, and the people I know who like, and I'm so glad to hear that you guys are all so critical of this because I've listened to so many art podcasts where these artists are like, oh, Instagram is so great. Like, you know, we used to be, you know, like the galleries would dictate everything and stuff, but now you can just get on social media and, you know, stuff. And I'm like, but you look at the work and it's like, in order to be successful on this platform, it's like, what have you like lost? Or, or maybe for some people, maybe your ambitions don't ha happen to fall in line with this platform, but that's not going to be everybody. Yeah. It's like, I'm fucking sorry. I'm not going to paint anybody's goddamn dog, you yeah. know? <laughs> and, yeah. uh, yeah. and that's, but Velas that's Velasquez would, no, just <laughs> but that's, <laughs> But that's, but if you really want to, and you know, and so I guess if you're like a dog portrait painter, you know, like Instagram for you is just like. Greatest thing ever. I, or if you're a really bad painter who just does splatter paintings with like primary colors and you decided last week you're an artist, you can get like a thousand followers. Yeah. Dude, if you could put that thing on like a turntable and spin it while yeah, you splatter it's amazing. it. Oh my or gosh. hey, can I, can I just, can I just do one complaint? Never show me this again. Stop it. It sucks. <laughs> It's fake. Every time you see somebody who dramatically slaps paint around and then they spin the canvas right side up and there's a vague image of Bob Marley or Bernie Sanders or whoever it is, that's they're not talented. They've penciled in the image and they've turned it upside down so you can't recognize what it is. But they know where the light paint should go and they know where the dark paint should go. Mm -hmm. And so it guarantees... Because it's all penciled in. That's why it's often on a black canvas. Watch when they start. Why is that? Well, because you can't pick up the pencil mark on the black canvas. But Are they you can. not entertained? Yeah. <laughs> it, this is the ultimate in entertainment art. And then people go, this is magic. So much talent. Oh, my gosh. Believe me. But I don't know why. There's a lot of talent here. A lot of talent. I always make great paintings. I don't know why. And so I just... Um, sorry. Um, <laughs> I always brush stroke to the right. Um, and so so they make these paintings and then they flip them upside down and they go like like they were a gladiator. And I'm yeah. like, 
those people are the worst painters in the world. They're not painters. They're they're they found a way to make a living, making a trick happen on an audience who just wants to be entertained at the most base level. And f- I'm not opposed to you doing that. I'm just saying, don't accuse me of being a jerk for not being excited about no, it. I mean, we used to I have, actually care about painting. We used to have yeah, like sorry. such a robust uh, creative community within our culture that you could have something like vaudeville. Yeah. Where it was understood to be kind of a lesser sort of thing, but everybody would would put in those hours. So like when you look at kind of the golden age of Hollywood, like they were all vaudeville performers because they put mm-hmm. in thousands and thousands of hours. Yeah. You know, and so you look at somebody who like can literally sing a song as they're dancing like the most intricate thing ever on film and you're like how's that person not wheezing in the corner i'm tired watching them and Mm -hmm. it's like well they've they've literally been practicing they've literally been doing this art for years and now we're like oh look we have entire platforms that are nothing but vaudeville that are all cul-de-sac that go nowhere yeah that don't actually help us that don't move to a space like you're saying miguel like it's just kind of like oh you just have the stuff and so what that then turns into is you have these talks with like students come up and they're like, so, I mean, I guess I've got to do dog portraits. And I'm like, no, like, yeah, it goes I mean, back to the can. whole, like, you, you can. can, you totally can. It's not a, qu- a question. It's just, it's, it's what, and it's what something you Miguel alluded to when you said that the world suffers too for, for the lack of what uh, art in the arts in the best of what they are mm-hmm. brings to the table. Yep. And it's, and it's, uh, you know, it's like uh, authors that, that you and I love uh, uh, Sierveld talks about aesthetic, uh, be aesthetic, being aesthetically impoverished, mm-hmm. um, and the idea that, and which I would agree with, that that aesthetics are um, uh, suggestion-rich, elusive realities. And so, in the in the uh, aesthetic interactions between a work of art, uh, whether you live with the presence of it or, you know, I like I use the example of my students yesterday. I said, if I go kick dust, that's because dust is suggestion-rich. It's aesthetic. What it means is it has uh, it's teeming with potential in its actualized state. And so when I go to kick the dust, the particles dissipate into the air and, and it makes a dust cloud for a moment. But it also can suggest to me putting water on it, which makes it to mud. And then I can decide to carry the mud into something else, which might be bricks or. And so what I'm trying to say is that the most base level of reality, I, you know, I would make the argument that all of reality is necessarily aesthetic in, in the, the state that it is. And it's suggestion rich and alluding to uh, future or potential possibilities. And they don't have to be actualized. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be. But but it, it, it's always a both end in that sense. And, and that requires interaction on our part. I have to actually kick the dust. So the painting, uh, uh, exi- living with a painting like living with anything, uh, your relationship to it changes over time. So we're so shallow in our consumeristic bent that in the moment of a painting that seems sad or whatever, um, we, we, we are so arrogant in our shallowness that we think if we don't get it in a moment, mm-hmm. it's not there to be gotten yeah. or, and so, which is a way of saying, I don't really know things. I just either get it in an instant or I don't. And mm-hmm. if I don't get an instant, it's just, it has no validity for me. How, who, who spends their time doing this? You're speaking mm-hmm. out of your own ignorance. You're speaking out of your stupidity actually. Yeah. So, um, you know, probably piss people off today, but I, I'll say it like people are stupid. Mm-hmm. And so in your stupidity, well, and I think that but the, the qualifier with that is that we're, we're volitionally stupid. Yes. That's what I'm saying. So it's a, yeah. So here's the scary thing. Volitionally stupid people across the board vote mm-hmm. really stupid people. Mm-hmm. And so, and they make the issue stupid 
and they flatten everything. And so then you talk about what you're saying, Miguel, as far as like what art does. And it's like, it's, it's a part of human existence that tries to develop and deal with human existence, but we're yeah. trying to avoid that. Mm-hmm. So that we make we don't make space for arts unless we bend artists' will into the vernacular and the way of entertainment. Yeah, and these are incompatible necessarily. I was, was going to say it feels like something very very tied into this, like it, kind of a the, the kernel at the center of some stuff is really the idea of alienation. Because mm-hmm. um, even like the 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 experiences y'all are talking about, Miguel and Ian, like it's alienation, right? It's a separation from a person. It's a separation from an experience. A separation mm-hmm. from some some uh, like tangible reality. Um, and then you look at uh, other things, and it's like, well, well, why do we not know things? Well, we have an alienation from actually uh, from from study, from learning, from curiosity. Like a lot of the things we've talked about in mm-hmm. the series, we have an alienation from. I would uh, say we even, we're even alienated from ourselves. Oh, 100%. So when suffering comes in, I think one reason why it can be super productive is because in, you cannot be alienated in suffering. Like it is such an in-your-face thing that when you're actually in it, you can't ignore it. And so I think that because we are so alienated, we find suffering to be a great place to do work from because it might actually be the only place where we're being human. Because well, so, so okay, much so of our me, society is just maybe we can we can take our um this this is the one a episode but let me just say this then yeah yeah because something you said also Miguel I wanted to uh, point out when when we're talking about the loss of someone as one example there is a um there's something that's severed there the person is no longer with you but so imagine that you've enlarged to the person. And now that person's gone, but that enlargement in you is still open. How is it filled? Um, what, what, and so what, what another way of saying is there's an enlarged capacity that then is turned on to um, any number of things. Um, and so in the case of the person who turns to making work, um, I, I think there's something that keeps popping up that I'm interested in, which is, um, it, which goes to what I mean when you say, we say we're really being human. Um, and, and so I think it's about our capacities, the depth, the range, and the scope. And then it's, it's about the catalyst for that. And so uh, the catalyst in this conversation is, is hovered around suffering. But the other thing is, um, um, can that be, uh, does, that, does that kind of range of capacity only has to happen with suffering? Mm. And so what I want to say is, I think that there's a difference between comfort and satisfaction. Yeah. And I think comfort... Uh, uh, causes us to suffer because in, in our comforts, sometimes in avoidance, we uh, become a little less human. Um, but we can be suffering and satisfied mm-hmm. because we see it in athletics. We see it in other endeavors. Oh, yeah. We can be. I'm so satisfied, but it is not hindering me from suffering in order to make. Um, and so I think there's something in in that interplay that is worth talking about. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, I just I think that there's something about capacity and uh and how do we how do we you know how do we enlarge our capacity and i think we're suffering in that way because we are running into a world that actually wants to dull down capacity we Mm. want to transfer responsibility over to other things i can't understand capacity in 280 characters i can't understand capacity in a 15 second video clip i can't understand capacity in a five image carousel yeah you know i can't understand capacity so effort yeah 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 so microwave culture mm-hmm. we're all part of it i'm i'm guilty as charged yeah but um the question is is that the most humanized 
opportunity for us. And is this something we should rethink, which is why we're doing this? Well, I think, I mean, you know, uh, whenever, whenever students, I always like to, to like, uh, pull a little bit of a juke with students who are like, well, this is really hard or I'm having a terrible time with this, or this is the best I can do. And I'm always like, do you, would you go to the gym? And like, once your muscle hurts, once you're like, well, I guess that's it. Yeah. Or are you like, no, it actually, actually have to build to capacity. Like, and, and in that, in that building toward capacity, suffering is like you're saying kind of a natural component, right? right. Like, and so I remind them, you lift weights, you're literally tearing your muscles apart. So they grow back stronger. It's, it's interesting. I, I often use that same analogy. I tell my students all the time in class that think of this as weight training. And, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's really difficult because, I mean, what feeds this whole um, uh, conflict that we've been discussing on a societal level is this uh, increasingly anti-aesthetic yes. disposition. And I always wonder, like, you know, like, what is at the root of that? Mm -hmm. You know, I I was recently watching a video about, like, um, conceptual art. And it was like an argument for conceptual art and how it had its roots. But the emphasis on the idea instead of the aesthetic object was like an anti-capitalist gesture um, because art objects are inherently commodifiable. commodifiable. But then again, look at any, um, I mean, you know, my wife works for a gallery and you know she tells me almost every proposal she sees begins with as a insert demographic Mm -hmm. and then i realized oh we stopped commodifying objects so that we could start commodifying people yeah because what you're and i was like and i was like so so please tell me like where are your anti-consumerist anti-capitalist values now if it's if yeah, we've we commodified ideas and identities yeah I, I yeah we sell identity and um some people would say that's objectifying right yeah, just enlarging the whole concept of what an object is now yeah. we are yeah. yeah we are actually objects that are subject to our own objecthood. and then but then you look at this across like outside of the fine art world i mean it, you look at social media platforms like where do they make their money mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. buying and selling us yep. yeah. on data? It's sort of like, That's why it's we, free. yeah, we live in a society like we think we're the producers of products when we're the object being sold. Yeah. And, Sheeple. And shadow. And I, and I think Shattle. that I think all of this is just one big mess. But I think but I think that that is one of the things that's operating behind this. Uh, why we hit this wall. Um either in ourselves or when we try to communicate with others on suffering because, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're trying to be fully human in a society that sees us as objects. And in, in a society that actually sees us, uh, there's proportions that are also seeing us as we got to evacuate being human. And so now you have a, a battle in that, in, uh, along those lines in a world that right now is having um, uh, has had a besetting suffering that is uh, uni- it's always been universal. Death is universal. Mm-hmm. Suffering is universal. But we've gotten a heightened aware a heightened awareness of it through the pandemic, and um, yeah. and so and so everybody's suffering now. And we and what you found is a lot of people don't have resources to deal with it. And so there's a whole discussion there. Let's let's leave this as a cliffhanger. For episode 101, mm-hmm. and we'll be back for episode 101, where yeah. we we pick up this conversation because we haven't even started it yet. 
No, to well, be honest, it's welcome it's to the really preface. True. I feel like we're just talking. About this the is beginning of, the like prelude. Just getting into the subject. Yes. Now we've halfway defined a term. Yeah. yeah, we've almost started the conversation, and we're so glad you're listening, and we hear you. So we're not going to make this a three-hour episode that you listen to all at once. Um, even though you can just press pause and come back to it, I know we like we like finality and resolution, and we. Um, so we're going to give that to you. And so uh, next check, week. Yeah, check back, in, <laughs> check back in with us. We'll be back and yeah. we'll see you then. Yeah, you're a fantastic audience. We love you and we will catch you next time. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottle.